Amen. If you have your Bibles tonight, and you will, uh, find with me the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew. Hey, that's better. That was a whole lot of spotlight on this face, and that's not a, not a good-looking view. So, but uh, Matthew, the 18th chapter tonight, and Matthew, the 18th chapter, might be uh, one of my favorite whole chapters in the Bible, uh, and the reason is because Jesus begins to talk to the church about really what a real church looks like. And all of us have been in church long enough to honestly form our own opinions of what church is supposed to be like, the things that we love about church, that we don't necessarily like about church, the things that we feel make strong churches, or why we want to go to a church, or don't want to go to a church. And and it really just, there's a lot of stuff that comes up when you begin to talk about church, because so many people love church. I love church. I love uh, being around God's people. I love the the joy and the and the the fun and the teasing and just the relationships that you build over uh, ten years and many many more years for some of you that have been here um, since there were uh, horse and buggies. But no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But the relationships that are built in those times and those relationships aren't always easy. Let's be honest, right? We have ups and downs and 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 difficulties and challenges, but. I think if you love God, and there are other people who love God, that there is a, a unique relationship that God gives uh, His people. Um, but yet, there are also other people that have had terrible experiences with people who go to church. Now, I say that very carefully because I hope that you know that everyone who comes to church is not saved. Um, everybody that preaches is not saved. Uh, everybody that are deacons are not saved. Everybody that is a Sunday school teacher does not mean they are saved. And so I want to be very clear that there are times when saved people hurt other people. I think a lot of hurt in church comes from people who claim to be saved, would tell you they are saved, but are not saved. Um, but tonight when we look at this, what does it mean or how to be the real church? a real Bible church that Jesus talks about. And I say that tonight knowing that you understand, hopefully, that this is the location that we meet at, but Jesus did not die for a building. He died for people, you and I. And so the church is the people. So we are the 10-milers who meet here at 10 Mile Baptist Church. And so one of the verses that I want to start with tonight, just to set the context, comes from the book of John, chapter 13. In John 13, starting in verse 34, the Bible says these words, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's a, a, a wonderful command. It's a wonderful instruction. We've all heard it preached many, many times and read it. But the second part of that verse is one that I think should cause all of us to stop and listen. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. So he says, by this is how you'll be known who you follow. And he says, if, there's a choice there. You can choose not to love according to Jesus. And you can tell everybody you're saved, but no one is going to believe that you are saved. If you have love for one another, 
I've preached a lot of revivals, counseled a lot of pastors, helped, tried to help a lot of churches, and I can tell you is there are a whole lot of people who would say they are disciples of Jesus, but if you were to ask and look at the fruit, the fruit would be very scarce. There isn't a lot of love there. Oh, they might be able to preach a great sermon. They might be able to raise lots of money for a new building. They might be able to sing beautifully. They might be able to teach a wonderful children's lesson. And all those things are wonderful and they're great. But yet that is not how you see your evidence of your relationship with the Lord. It is how you love God and love other people. And so tonight I pray that you will journey with me through this chapter over the next few weeks as we look at what it looks like to be a real church. And so pray with me tonight. Father, I come to you thanking you for your word and for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I thank you for your teachings, Lord, your, your words to us. And Father, I believe that they are true. Lord, I believe they are perfect in every way. So Father, tonight I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in this group of people tonight, Lord, that First and foremost, that this group would know without a shadow of a doubt that they belong to you, that they are yours, Lord, that they have been born again. And Lord, for those that know that tonight, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to know that you have a purpose and a plan for their life. Lord, that this community needs not another church building, but a group of people that love you. And so, Father, tonight I pray that you'd help me to speak, that you'd help me to proclaim, Lord, that you'd forgive me of anything in my heart or life that would hinder what you're trying to do in this place tonight. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I want to just take you through three things tonight in this text about how to be the real church. And the first thing is this. We need to understand how to become a believer and live it out. We looked at these verses the last time we were together uh, in connection to the last chapter, but tonight I want to look at them in connection to this chapter. It says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 18, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And if you've ever read chapter 18 or you looked ahead because you got tired of my long introduction, you probably noticed that he talks about little child in verses 1 through 5. He talks about little ones in verses 6 through 10. And, and then you would say, but yeah, then he begins to talk about lost sheep and, and a sinning brother and unforgiving servants. It's like just a hodgepodge of different stories. No, they are all on the same theme. How God's people are to deal with God's people. God's people when they go astray. God's people when there's conflict. God's people when there's unforgiveness. God's people when someone causes another one to stumble and what it looks like to be God's people. And so chapter 18 is not a hodgepodge of little stories. It is one common theme directed to God's people, the disciples, the spiritual of the spiritual, and what it looks like to follow Jesus. 
And so tonight, if you want this church to be a church that not the community talks about in a good way, or not that just draws a big crowd, but a church that God is pleased with. And friends, that's all that matters. I know churches that are little bitty that God is pleased with their obedience. And I know churches that are great big that there is no way that God can be pleased with their disobedience. But for me, when I lay my head on the pillow at night or one of these days when I preach my final sermon, it will not be about God, how big was the church, how little was the church, how amazing was the church. It is, Lord, are you pleased with us? And for my own sake, God, are you pleased with me? And so we see here that Jesus begins to talk about what it means to be a believer and how to live it out. Literally, the question that they ask him is, who is the greatest? Who is going to be the greatest? And I think all of us want that in our lives. Now, you might be this way, but you might not be. But most people don't wake up in the morning and say, I hope I can be a total and complete failure in everything I do. Right? I hope I am the worst, most awful husband that I could ever be. I hope I take a shower that does not clean me at all today and I stink everyone that I work with at work. I hope that I brush my teeth in a manner that everyone knows that I am there because my breath is terrible. Now, I've met some people that I thought that was the case, but that probably wasn't their intent when they woke up in the morning. Most people don't wake up and say, I hope that I'm terrible. I hope that I'm... It's an identity of who wants to be the greatest. And so some of this is not necessarily wrong, but we know it is driven in pride. And so Jesus begins to answer them and to clarify what it is. Because I think all of us probably have a favorite preacher, a favorite Sunday school, someone who we consider the greatest at whatever they do. But Jesus completely turns this upside down. For me, I personally believe that uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers is probably the, one of the greatest pastors that America has ever seen. You might disagree. But yet, that is not what Jesus says here makes you the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Look what it says there in verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little children. He's talking about faith, simple childlike faith that believes in who Jesus Christ is is, that he died upon the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again. Friends, if you are not born again, you are not a part of the true church. You might be a member of a church. You might be an elder of a church. You might be a, a, a Sunday school teacher of a church. But if you are not born again, if the Spirit of God has not convicted you, if you've not responded, if you've not repented, if you've not turned from your sinful ways and trusted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, you might attend a church building, but you are not a member of the church. I appreciate that, amen. I appreciate that, because it was exactly right. And friends, we have to get back to teaching people what it means to be born again that you have to repent, that you have to turn from your wicked ways, and you have to trust Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. We try to baptize people sometimes to make them feel good about themselves. We try to get them into Sunday school sometimes. We try to get them involved sometimes. But what you need to know is the greatest need that every human being has is to be born again to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says that you have to be converted. 
and come with childlike faith. Now, that doesn't say that adults are wrong or terrible or are useless. We know that's not the case. But in the concept of faith, he goes on here and says, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. There is only one way to be saved. And we have to return to that teaching in our churches that Jesus Christ wants you to be saved. That Jesus Christ has done everything possible for you to be saved. But there is a consequence for rejecting Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. You will not enter into heaven. You are not a part of the family of God. Because look what it says here in verse 4. So we see you must be a believer, but how do you live it out? Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So not only are we born again, not only are we humbled at salvation, then we live out that humility and how we love others. Now, there is not one person usually in a crowd of this size that if a little kid hands you a toy telephone and they've got a toy telephone, and they put it up to your ear, what are you going to do with it? You're going to put it up on your ear like this, and you're going to go, what are you doing? I've seen some of you grown men act like fools when your grandkids are involved, right? Yeah, what are you, how's grandpa's favorite little kid? It's just that way, right? Because it's just something about that child asking you for that. And friends, what we're teaching here, what Jesus is teaching here, that humility and love is directed to those who can give us nothing in return. Children don't pay the, the majority of your church budget. They take up an offering in children's church every Sunday morning. Children's church is just like big church, except they have a lot more excitement during worship. But they have offering time, they have prayer time, they have scripture reading, they have a sermon. They, all those things, they model it after church so that when they leave there, hopefully they can bring some of that life and vitality that they've got in there out here. But yet, I've been here 10 years and we just keep sucking it out of them when they get in here. So I don't know what we've got to do differently. But that's why, because they are modeling what it looks like. But yet, let's be honest, children can't work in the nursery. Children don't teach our Sunday school classes. Children don't hang drywall at church. Children are not able to do the things that we view as the church functioning. But yet he's teaching us here that not only are we humbled at salvation, that we are to be humble to others. Be willing to help those and to love those and to care for those who can do nothing for us from an earthly standpoint. Listen to how Jesus describes it in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 7 through verse 14. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invites you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, 
lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, <coughs> invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see, my faith is not about what I can get here or get from you here. And so it's about loving people and caring for people that are broken and hurting, that have nothing to give back. In the Sunday school class that I teach, we're going through the book of James, and we were on this morning, James chapter 2, about not giving honor to those who come into the church that have gold and silver and wealthy and telling those who have nothing to, to go sit over there or to value those who have money over those who don't because he even goes on to say it's the rich who are taking you to court and suing you and making your life miserable. There's nothing sinful about being wealthy. There's nothing sinful about God's blessings. But friends, we always need to be reminded that even the tax collectors, even the heathens do nice things for people who can do nice back to them. But as a church, we ought to exemplify loving people who give nothing in return. You say, wait a second, Jake, that means you're teaching people to be mute, uh, to be mooches. No, I'm not saying that. He mentions people who are unable to help themselves. Don't miss this tonight. The maimed, the lame, the blind, the poor in that sense of they cannot work, they cannot earn, they cannot make for themselves. They are not making ends meet. The Bible never teaches us to become a welfare state. The Bible teaches us that those who cannot help themselves, the widows and the orphans, that it is our command from heaven to care for them, to love them, to pray for them. I... Uh, I was doing some hospital visiting this week, and uh, a lady from the hospital stopped me and said, hey, I just want you to tell your church thank you. And I said, well, I don't want to tell them that because they'll get a big head. But she said, promise me that you'll tell them. I'm like, well, I don't, I guess if I have to be nice, I will, all right? And she said, you tell them thank you from the hospital. And I said, I'll tell them that. She goes, now wait, because I know you, Jake, that's all you'll say. And I'm like, <laughs> she said, I want you to, to, again, to thank them for providing sleeping pants, pull-ups, and those things to our residents. And I said, you're, you're very welcome. It's our, our privilege. And she said, Jake, we've got, a, we've got a patient here that has no family, has no money, has no anything, and he had nothing. He would have nothing here, but yet what your church has donated to the hospital. And she goes, I know he'll probably, he might not ever get out of the hospital. He might not ever get better. He probably will never even know your church, but thank you for loving him. This is not a Christian person. But why? Loving those who can do nothing for you is a model of who Jesus is. Because who did Jesus love? Us. And what can we offer Him? Filthy rags. And so if you want to be a real church, you have to be born again and live out humility. The second thing I want to show you here tonight from this text is we also need to understand how God cares and protects His own. So it's not only about our relationship with God and how we treat others, but we need to understand how God cares and protects His own. Look in verse 10 with me. But whoever causes one of these little ones, he's talking about new believers, believers in the faith. He's not talking about children in the sense of their age. He's talking spiritual here. 
causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Is it better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire? And if your fire, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now I want to show you this this morning, this evening, because what we see here is he is warning those who harm others. And yes, could this be applied to little children? Absolutely. Does God want little children to be abused? Absolutely not. But what he's talking about here is the same theme of before. Those in the faith, those new in the faith, those beginning in the faith. He is telling them that God is going to punish those who cause others to stumble. And I know that this was not a very popular sermon two weeks ago, but when we talked about the fact that God's people used to live in such a way that we avoided anything that could be a, the appearance of evil, we never wanted anyone to stumble because of us. We wanted our lives to be above reproach, and that's how we live. Because we never wanted someone to say, I will not believe in Jesus because of them, their life, their hypocrisy. But he says here, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me, this is a believer that has been caused to stumble, to sin. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. God is saying it would be better for that to be your punishment than what God is going to do to someone who causes believers to stumble. Now, I think this is important today because what we're looking at here is a church full of people and how they treat others. And you say, well, God, uh, how can uh, God punish a saved person in such a terrible way? Well, one, I think he is talking about people who are in the church who are not of the church. And so those people who sneak into the church that are not saved, but act like they're saved and talk like they're saved and try to convince you to be saved, that when they cause real believers to stumble, real believers to sin, real believers to struggle, that God is going to punish them extremely harshly. You say, well, Jake, that's a... That's a sombering thought. It is. It is a sombering thought to think, how has my life affected other people? How has my life influenced the lives of other people? That's why the Bible says that for a pastor, for someone who handles the Word of God, that the judgment will be double. Why? Because I have a platform every Sunday not to lead 10 people astray, 20 people astray, but hundreds of people astray. Hundreds of people could be taught something that was contrary to the Word of God. Hundreds of people could be taught something or lived out something that did not honor God and cause them to stumble and have a problem with the things of God. And he goes on there and talks about if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, to cut it off. Who is he talking about here? He's talking about the person who is causing the believer to sin. And so if you are truly a believer, you are willing 
to get rid of anything in your life that is going to cause someone else in the faith to stumble. You say, Jake, what about my freedom? What about my liberty? What about the liberty of love? Then get over it. God has set you free, but don't use your freedom to cause someone else to stumble. You see, it's so important here. He literally tells you it would be better to lose an appendage, to lose an eye, than to have to stand before God someday and explain why you caused someone to stumble. Why you destroyed the church of Jesus Christ. Why you harmed someone who was following Jesus. Now, this is what happens right now. Everybody in here is thinking, not me. I would never do that. I would never harm another believer. Look up here. We can harm other believers even when we don't mean to. It, it happens. I, you know me. I love to make fun of myself, and I love to tease other people too. It's just the way it is. But not everyone appreciates my wonderful sense of humor and my bubbly personality. No, it's just the way it is. I don't understand it, but I, I think I'm a joy to be around. But apparently I am not. All right? And I've had to go to people and say, hey, you know I was just kidding, right? I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. I didn't mean to upset you. And, and sometimes people have said, you know what? I appreciate that. Other times they haven't. Now, I don't know if I've told this story in a while, but I'm going to tell it. And if I have, I'm sorry. I was getting up from Ferris's this week and uh, had just ate a bunch of food that I didn't want to eat, but I was supposed to eat, so that's what I ate. And some lady goes, hey, come here, Jake. And I knew immediately what she was going to tell me when I sat down. She said, come sit down here. There was a gentleman sitting across from her, and she goes, hey, this is the guy I told you about. And I went, oh. I mean, I physically felt the air going out of me. I just knew that it doesn't usually go well after that. And she says, do you remember the preacher who said that all young women get old and ugly? This is him? I went, I didn't say that. I, I didn't say that. And he goes, oh, yeah, she talks about that story all the time. And so I clarified what had happened. Well, she informed me that there was a period of time that it bothered her. And I apologized again for that statement. But that's not what I said. And so, as she informed me, well, Jake, you know who I heard from. I heard it from one of your members. I'm not going to watch you. I'm like, fair, fair point. You know, I'd watch David Jeremiah too, but so, it, so be it. And I've thought about that and thought about that. And I think I was even, I think I was even telling maybe Larry this week about this story. And, and it's true. This lady, as far as I know, is not a believer. I'm praying that she will come to know the Lord. I don't know this man's salvation, but he, I don't know his story. But I've always thought about that. What in the world if that really kept from one. Because I'm not going to lie, I went to a lot of places and a lot of people brought that story up. Jake, do you really think that I'm this age, that I'm old and ugly? No, I don't. I promise. I was preaching against lust and young men and don't chase after things. And, and anyway, it just got out of hand in a hurry. <laughs> Ten years later, I'm still apologizing. And so I know that things can happen. But let's be clear tonight, all of us can be selfish. All of us can want our own way at church. All of us cannot consider the consequences of our actions. 
It happens. And listen to what 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter says, because God is going to fight for His own. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul says that when he fights, he does not fight with weapons made of hands. He fights with spiritual weapons that God can use to tear down strongholds of sin, strongholds of fear, strongholds of rebellion. And tonight you need to know something. These are people in 2 Corinthians who are in the church, who are claiming to be believers in the church. We don't know if they were saved or not, but what Paul says is, when I come, the power of God is going to be at work. And the power of God is going to be changing things. And the power of God is going to be changing people. And my desire is that you will repent and that this, this display will not be necessary. But he says, don't be fooled. God will be at work. And tonight I want you to hear that. You might think that you've got away with it. You might think that someone else has gotten away with it. But God has not forgotten. God has not grown weary. God will defend His church, fight for His people, convict His own, do the things that only He can do tonight if we will trust Him. And the third and final thing this evening, we need to understand that God's desire for forgiveness and reconciliation. Because you see, we looked here about being born again. We looked here about God fighting for us and, and, and dealing with those who harm us. But don't miss the real intent behind why He does what He does. Look here in verses <clears throat> uh, 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's back again on little children. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now I want to stop right there. This verse does not teach that you have a guardian angel that is assigned specifically to you, that you can pray to, that you... No, he's just talking about that angels are ministering spirits, right? The Bible says that, that the angels minister and fight and work on God's behalf, okay? Just want to clarify that. Always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray... Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over the sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not stray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, if you've been in church at any length of time, you've probably heard this preached about God seeking the lost. But He's not. 
He is talking about His sheep who have gone astray. He is talking about a believer who is abandoning the faith. A believer who is living in sin, running from God. Now, is it true that God pursues lost people? Absolutely. But what is the context of this whole chapter? It's about being born again. It's about God fighting for His own. It's about God going after His that have gone astray. You go on in the next verses, and what is it? It's about dealing with a sinning fellow believer. This is the same context tonight. And so tonight what we see here is that there will be people who are born again believers of Jesus Christ who run from God, who go through seasons of rebellion. Many of you tonight would say that you were saved at a young age, and yet you ran from God. You rebelled. You got into things that you shouldn't. And then as you got older, the Spirit of God convicted you. If you're like me, you probably struggled with it. I was raised generally Baptist. Don't hold that against me, all right? And so for when I came back to the Lord, I didn't know what I believed. I didn't know about saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, God never saved. I, I didn't know what to do or what to think. I just knew I wanted to be right with God. And I was talking to the pastor at the time of the church that we were attending, and he said, Jake, I have one question to ask you. I said, absolutely. I was 22 years old. He said, Jake, when you repented of your sins as a child, where, what the building that used to be Hux's at a revival meeting, he said, and you called upon the Lord. Did you believe in your heart that Jesus was who he said he was? That you were a sinner and confessed him as the Lord and Savior of your life? I said, I did. I believed I was saved and I, I knew that I loved him because of him. He said, Jake, over the next few years, did you grow in your faith and serve the Lord? I said, yeah. I said, my freshman and sophomore year of high school, I taught a Bible study before school and one at lunch. He said, and when you begin to run from God, was there conviction? I said, I was miserable. I was miserable in taverns when everybody else was having a good time. I was miserable living in sin when everybody else seemed to be having a good time. I was miserable because of conviction. And he said, Jake, you were born again. And God never let you go, even though you ran from Him. You say, well, Jake, I don't know if I believe that or not. Well, you just read it in this verse. That God pursued the one who ran. You see, the Bible calls God's people sheep. He doesn't call God's people goats or dogs or pigs like He does other places and other groups of people. Sheep are reserved for the people of God. And so what we see here is when a Christian goes astray. And tonight you might need to hear that. Tonight you might be sitting here thinking I've got an adult child that's a prodigal. Now I can't tell you whether they were truly saved or not and are running from God or if they were never saved and are running from God. But what I can promise you this is that God will not stop pursuing them. I mean, apparently I'm the only one in here that's ever had a, a prodigal family member. That should cause us great hope. Because if God quit believing on us, when we quit believing on Him, we'd all be lost. But look what it says there. And I don't want you to miss this because I want you to hear what the Word of God says. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angel... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep? They're already his. 
They're not someone else's sheep. He's not going out to buy the sheep. Whose sheep are they? They're his. And so if you are belonging to the Lord, you are whose? His. And one of them goes astray. He's talking about a sheep that is his who is run. Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? I think it is interesting here that he uses mountain, right? I wouldn't walk across the street for some people. Just being honest with you. It doesn't say that he pursued them out into the meadow. It doesn't pursue them out. What do you think about when you think about a mountain? Difficulty, right? You don't sign up and say, I think I'll just climb a mountain today. It sounds like a fun activity. No, you go for a walk. You train to climb a mountain. You have gear to climb a mountain. You prepare to climb a mountain. The Bible says, right, that if you have faith the side of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will be gone into the sea. It's an obstacle. And what he's teaching here, if you will just look at the text, is that God will pursue you anywhere. There is not a mountain so high, a valley so low, that can keep me from getting to you, right? Don't care much for the lady that played in that movie. But anyway, he's teaching here that God will not let you go. You might wander for a season. You might get astray for a season. But if you truly belong to him, he is going to find you. He's never lost where you were. He's never been in question about where you've gone. He knows you. The spirit of God lives within you. He is with you. And it goes on to say here, and if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over the sheep than over the 99 that it did not go astray. And now some of you are saying, well, if, well, you mean that God might not? No, that's not what it's saying. You have to remember that not everything in the English translates from the Greek. It's talking about when, when he finds them. Now you say, well, Jake, I don't understand that. People have to come back on their own. You're absolutely right, but it is an analogy. It's an analogy for the fact that God does not stop convicting his own. God never stops drawing people to himself that are saved. There will never come a time in a believer's life when the Spirit of God says, I'm done with you and I'm moving out. He rejoices more over the sheep than the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You say, well, Jake, perish. Talking about dying, go to hell. No, that's not what that word for perish means there. It can mean physical death. And so, don't miss this, 1 Corinthians teaches us what? That if you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that some of you have gotten sick and some of you have died. There will come a point in someone's life if they run from God far enough and long enough and will not repent that God will take them home. You say, Jake, I don't like that. I don't care. It's what the Bible says. Better to go to heaven saved than lose what God gave you. It's just the way it is. It's not a cruel teaching. It's a teaching of love. Or it can mean spiritual ruin here. Friends, you can run from God so long that you ruin everything in your life. Christian, you can ruin your marriage today by letting sin get in 
your life. You can ruin your children by letting sin get into your life. Listen to what Jesus or the angel who tells in the book of Revelation chapter 2 to John to write to the church in chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patient and have labored for my Father's, my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. That is in the midst of the paradise of God. You say, wait a second. You just told us that God would not take it away from you. This was written to a group of churches. And that God would remove his blessing from that place. That God would take what He is doing and working collectively from them. And tonight I want you to know something. You can be saved and in a dead church. You can be spiritually alive and sitting in a pew that God is doing nothing corporately. And tonight I say that because I want you to hear this. God can remove His blessing anytime that He wants. He doesn't have to bless this church. He doesn't have to bless us because we believe the right things, preach the right things, labor the right things. But friends, if we leave our first love, that means that we love anything more than Jesus. That we don't love Him with our whole heart, mind, soul, strength, and body. Friends, we will lose the blessing of God. And that's a dangerous thing. That's a dangerous thing for me as a pastor to preach without the power of God. That's a dangerous thing for me to teach Sunday school without the power of God. That's a dangerous thing to think about Jamie standing up here singing without the power of God. It's a dangerous thing to think that you are doing something that God is not blessing. But friends, I hate to say this to you today, but I would say the overwhelming majority of churches are operating that way. But it doesn't have to be that way. Don't miss that. Look what it says there in verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. And what's that word? Repent. Repent. And do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Who is these letters written to? Churches. Groups of people. Can it be applied individually? I think there are things that you can apply individually, but he is writing it to the church at Ephesus. And friends, tonight you need to know something. The answer to a dead church, the answer to a dead Sunday school class, 
The answer to a dead relationship that you are walking in, in the Lord, is always repentance. It's always repentance. Tonight you say, well, Jake, if we just had, if you, if we just had more lights up there on the stage and, and smoke, man, we would reach young people and, and there would be so much going on here. It would just be unbelievable. Or Jake, if you take off that stupid tie and that stuffy coat and preach like all these other people do, man, we would reach all kinds of young families. I don't know if you know this or not. God has been blessing us and I do wear a tie. Because wearing a tie or not wearing a tie is not a mark of why God blesses a church. I think you ought to wear a tie. I'll just going to be honest with you if you preach, but that's my personal opinion. But tonight I want you to know something. God will remove His blessing for sin in the camp. But tonight, it doesn't have to be that way. And so tonight, if you and I will listen to the Spirit of God and repent, God can do amazing things through this group of people, this local church, for His glory. We have a baptism service coming up Sunday. Have two children so far. Got about 25 adults that need to be baptized, but I'm not going to throw you under the bus, but you need to be baptized. Lots of people who need to follow the Lord. I'm telling you what, friends, that's a God thing. It's not a preacher thing. It's not a music thing. When the Spirit of God convicts people of their sin and shows them of their need to be saved, that's a God thing. And we've been blessed. Like I said, we've had four saved in the last week and a half. I'm praying that God would save many, many more. And I'm going to be happy when He does and celebrate. But I can tell you this, I don't want to look back on this night and five years from now and say, boy, we let sin run amok. And God has removed His blessing from this group of people. Church isn't always fun even when God is at work because it's difficult. Church is definitely not even fun when the Spirit of God is not here and working and moving for His glory. And so tonight, if you would stand with me and bow your heads. Tonight, I want you to know that this message was directed to the church to save people who are the Lord's. But tonight, I want you to know something. If you're here, you're not saved. You've never been born again. Tonight could be that night for you. Can I be the night that you say, God, I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus died upon the cross for my sins. I believe that He rose from the dead and He is the Son of God. Tonight can be the night that you repent of your sins and confess Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. Tonight, that could be the night. But church, I challenge to you tonight as you don't have to agree with everything I said tonight, there's enough disagreements in the Bible that you can disagree and we can still love each other. But the context of everything that I read to you tonight was given toward a group of people who called themselves believers. Disciples, followers of Jesus. And so tonight, if you want to see the move of God that only can be given the credit and glory to God, it's going to start with you and I humbling ourselves and saying, God, we want to do it your way. In your way alone. And so tonight I'm going to be standing right down here. I'd love to share with you the scriptures about what it takes to be saved. I'd, I'd love for God's people to find a place and to pray for.
those families that come to this church every week that are lost for, for hurts, for brokenness, for whatever is going on that you know about, that God could do an amazing work for His glory.